It's so good to be together in the Lord's uh, house, together with his people, as always. And uh, I'm just grateful that, uh, that uh, he has graced us and been merciful to us every day. Amen. And he's enabled us to be here to uh, worship him. So my text this morning is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And I'll read it in two parts. We've been talking over the past couple of months about this reminder for us, and as New Hope Chapel and as God's people, that we ought to gather, grow, and go. And those are so important, so critical for us. And, you know, if you reflect back, we were looking at the idea of gathering and how it's biblical. Gathering is biblical, and it's in the Bible, it's expected by God, it's foundations. The foundations we have for gathering as His people are biblical. We also learned that not only are they, is gathering biblical, but it's beneficial, because two are better than one. And then we also learn that gathering is beautiful when God's people come together and they are of one heart and one mind and they're glorifying God because that's why we're here. We're here to glorify God. And when we get together and we're, we're, we're bound by the same spirit, the spirit of Christ, and we lift our voices and our hearts and our prayers and our thoughts are focused on his words and his commands and his instructions for us, it is a beautiful thing. And God's desire is, is that when we get together, because His Spirit brings us together, that it would be, remember, like, like that dew and like that oil that ran down, the, all down from Aaron's head all the way down, and then that dew that flowed from the mountaintops down and refreshed everything. It's beautiful to gather. But growing is something that's very important, too, that we ought to do. And it's part of what the church exists for. It's not the purpose of our salvation, but it is a result of our salvation that we grow. And we looked two weeks ago that growing is also, just like gathering was, it's biblical. It is expected. In fact, we looked at the fact that in the scripture we see that it is God's will for us to grow. It's his expectation, and so it's a biblical thing that we grow, that we excel more in those good deeds, that our faith grows. All those, our, our knowledge of God, our grace, we'll get to the, get that in a couple of weeks, but we need to, to, to remind ourselves it is biblical to grow. If, if God saves us and he regenerates us and we're For example, newborn babes in Christ, and we're babies in Christ in our faith. God's expectation, just like in the natural, is that we would grow, just like our children grow. God wants that to be occurring in our lives as well. It is biblical that we grow, and God expects us to grow. And that process of growth is called sanctification. It's progressive. Oh, it's not easy. We talked about that. It's, it's a struggle. You know, even Paul wrote about that. But we need to make sure that we are growing in that process of sanctification. And God's in charge of that process. But he's in charge as much also as we submit to that process. And the goal, of course, of that sanctification is that you and I would be more Christ-like. Oh, help us, Lord. Help me, Lord, because I need that. Today... I want to kind of take a little, it's, it's on the same vein, but a little bit of a sidetrack. Because we're looking at the Easter story, and don't, don't worry, and I know Pastor Dan's not here, I don't, want to, I don't want him to get nervous, because I'm not going to preach about Palm Sunday, that's his job next week. But I am going to reference the story leading up to that, on that same day, it's really, really important. In Luke chapter 19, it's important to notice that there are two things, I want to leave you two things, 
that you've just got to have. And I believe that they are fundamental. They are foundational to our growth. Of course, we have the word. We have prayer abiding in Christ. We've got to do that to grow. Without that, we cannot grow. We can't produce anything. We've got to be connected to Christ. But these two things demonstrate and will allow for us to grow if we only do these two things. And they're found in the Easter story, the pre-Easter story, if you will, here in the scriptures. You know, we all prepare for things in our own ways, don't we? Like, when you're going for a, a special dinner night out, you know, some, some people, sometimes it's guys too, but you know, some of you ladies might take like two hours to get ready. Come on, let's go, what are you doing? I gotta put some more makeup on. Why, you're beautiful already. No, I need makeup. No, you're beautiful. No, come on, you're done. Nope, and you gotta get that last eyelash. I don't know, whatever it is. But you're taking forever, right? But we all, we have a routine. That's the point. We have a routine. Or if you go and get a haircut from Stacy, her routine is that she'll work on your hair for five minutes and then talk to you for half an hour. Then she'll work on your hair for five minutes and talk to you for a half hour, right? She's laughing because she knows it's true. We all have our auntie. We all have our routines of how we do things, how we prepare, and how we go through the process, right? And, and I remember growing up, and, and baseball season's coming, and I'm not a big baseball fan as much as I used to be anymore. I'm just, ah, whatever. It is what it is. But I, growing up in Cleveland, we had the Cleveland Indians, right? The 90s were good to us. We had a lot, we had a great teams. It was, ah, it was fun. That was a lot of fun, you know? Um, but there was a player, even earlier than that, and his name was Mike Hargrove. He actually managed the Indians. But Mike Hargrove, he had a nickname. Mike Hargrove, Hargrove, he was a first baseman. He had the nickname. He was called the Human Rain Delay. He was. You can look it up. I remember that. He was a Human Rain Delay. Because when he would have his routine to prepare to go to bat, he'd get outside the batter's box, and he would go with his gloves like 45 times, strapping them, strapping them, fitting them up, then you know, running his bat, tapping them. His whole routine, other batters have that too. But it was like five minutes later, the first pitch is thrown to him. And you wonder why baseball games are long. That's another reason why I'm not into baseball. But anyway, and, and the human rain delay, he had his way of doing things. We all do that. And we do that in different times of the year. You know Christmas is an obvious one. We go all out. Some people go crazy with the trees, the decorations, the baking, the dressing, the shopping, the, 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 the wrapping, the, the whole deal making your whole house look like it's the North Pole. Whatever it is, you would just go nuts. But what about Easter? What do we do for Easter? Some people do some stuff. I mean, they might have their, their things that they prepare for, but what do they do? You know, if you're a real fanatic, you know, you might dye a few eggs or maybe a lot of eggs because, you know, bunnies lay eggs. And, um, and then you buy a new outfit and then, bam, you're done. You're ready for Easter. It's spring. I'm all a new outfit. I look great. and I'm ready to go to church on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But to Christians, think about this. Easter is the most important day of the year. Or it should be. It ought to be. It's the day that we celebrate the central event of all of history. The day that Jesus rose from the dead in order to make eternal life possible for you, for me. You know, traditionally, a lot of people prepare for Easter by making this, if we look at past the outward things, the trappings and all the external things, right? A lot of people make their preparation for Easter, something along these lines where it's a period of repentance, right? They deny themselves a particular pleasure commodity or convenience or taking on a new task of service during this time. For example, a person might, go, might forego a meal a day or they might do without meat on Fridays 
I'm not familiar with that tradition, but some people do that. Or they volunteer one day a week at a homeless shelter to indicate that they're really repentant in their spirit and they're preparing themselves and humbling themselves in heart and mind before the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. And then Easter comes and everything goes back to normal. Right? And those pleasure commodities are indulged and then we're just, we're just going nuts again. And some things change, but not often. But this morning, when you're looking in Luke chapter 19, and I encourage you to go there now, I want to offer you two ways that you and I can most effectively and meaningfully get ready for Easter, and it's about growing. Growing in these ways. And it's through experience, it's through our faith that's lived out that we begin to grow in these ways that are fundamental to our Christian growth. The first of the two is found in the example of the disciples. And let me read this scripture. As Jesus approached, in verse 29, Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now here's the lesson. Let me just give it to you and then we'll talk about it. Do what Jesus says. All right? Do what Jesus says. If we're going to grow and if we're going to have effective growth in our life, we have to grow in our obedience to Christ and His Word. You can absolutely not grow in your spiritual journey and in your life without being obedient to Christ and His words. It's not going to happen. God starts the process going. He regenerates you. He saves you the Spirit. He saves you. You become His child. And now as His child, He gives you His Word. He tells you how to live. He tells you how to have success, how to have success, how to be fruitful and productive in your life for His glory and for the benefit of others. And yet, it requires a submission on our part and that we are willing and saying, I'm going to obey. Oh man, that's, that word is so difficult. Obey. Obedience. Submit. Those things are the most unpopular words you could ever think of. They're the furthest things from most people's minds today. Even Christians, yes. Because even for me sometimes, I read it and I'm like, really? And you fight that. But those words, those are, those are tough words. But we've got to grow in our obedience to Christ and his word. If we're going to see good production in our lives, do what Jesus says. Jesus sent two of his disciples on a strange little mission, didn't he? He said, go to this little village, up the road, untie the colt you'll find, and bring it to me. Okay. Now, here's the thing. The Bible does not tell us which two went. You can guess or surmise or whatever. You can do whatever you want. You can, we don't know which two went, right? I might have some ideas in my mind based on what happened, but who knows? I'm probably wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us also what they talked about on the way. But if it had been me, I would have been probably saying something like, do you really think we should take and just untie that colt and run off with it? I mean, Jesus said to do that. 
But think about it. It's like, it's like how crazy this is. And I'm being, I don't know what other word to put. This is the most crazy thing. It's like if Jesus were here and he said to me and Sharon, and we're, pretend we're the two, he says, Bob and Sharon, go to Stop and Shop and that brand new Tesla, just go tell the driver, give me your key, the Lord wants it. It, it is. I mean, I'm, it's not about being funny. It's, it's just absurd. To, to, to have Jesus say something like that, to go and take somebody's, you know, little, you know, ride, their ride, their, 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 their mode of transportation for products or themselves, and to say, I'm, I'm just, and not even to ask for the keys, but just start untying it and then walk away with it. And then when the owner goes, hey, what are you doing? Oh, the Lord needs it. Oh, that's cool. That's all right. Go ahead. Which is actually what happened. Now, whether you believe that or not, it happened because the Bible said so. And it's crazy. It's insane in some ways. It blows our mind, right? And I, and I would also be thinking, like, do you think that the master who, or the owner of that cult is known by Jesus? That's why he's telling us to do that? Maybe they're saying, well, hey, do you think this is a test of some kind? And on some level, maybe it was, of course, with their obedience. Do you really think they'll just let us take off with their cult? Now, what about this one? I'll leave you, give you one more, because this is one I thought of. What if, what if I'm talking with my friend, going to get this, this cult, and I'm saying, hey, what if they take a swing at us? Ooh, Jesus didn't say how to respond. What do I do? Do you think, Jesus didn't say what should, we should do. So if they do, should we swing back and keep going with the cult? Should we, I mean, these are things that cross my mind. I'm sorry, I'm just sharing where I'm at, right? But, but, what, but these are real things. These are humans. These are people. They're living in this, in this, right in that moment. Because, you know, the problem is, is that we tend to read the Bible, and some of us, unfortunately, and we have to fight this, we think that it's like a play that's been written out. And all these characters that are in there, they knew their lines and their part. They didn't. They did not. They were not aware of what the script was. And thank God that we have an outline of the script. But I'll tell you what, we don't know any more than they did. or what, Me or you, we just have no idea what the full script is. We have a good amount of it. But we don't know every single detail. And they didn't know. And, but those two disciples, whoever they were, they did what Jesus said to do. The Bible says that at first... His disciples, they didn't understand this and other things that Jesus was saying. But only after Jesus was glorified, after he was resurrected and ascended to heaven, did they realize that these things that were written about him, that they had done these things to him, they understood what it was all about. They didn't fully understand, but they obeyed Jesus. They went out, they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, they untied the colt, and people standing there said, Hey, what are you doing with my horse? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Can I just say again that they answered as Jesus told them to? They didn't add to, they didn't take away, they didn't make up something else that sounded a little better to help Jesus' explanation. They just said, Jesus needs it. They believed that God was in charge and they obeyed him, that Jesus had a plan. They didn't understand it, but they did it. And then when they brought that colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. And we know the rest of the story, which happens next week, right? The result was amazing. Their simple act of obedience brought incredible, incredible results. God was glorified. God was glorified. 
Do you know that later on, I don't know if it was the same disciples, but in Luke 22, just a couple chapters down, in verse 13, there is an amazing story that's just as crazy. I have to share this. Because these disciples, Jesus tells them, now they, remember, they do this cult thing. They, they, steal, they steal a cult, right? Okay, is that not fair? But they did. They stole a cult, right? They, 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 they bring it back. Jesus is on it. But then in chapter 22, Jesus says to his disciples, two of them, hey, listen, um, where we, go and prepare a place for us to have the last Passover. They're like, okay. He's like, go. Where are we going to have it? Go prepare. He says, what are we going to do? And he says, go in, this, in the town. When you see a guy carrying a pitcher, follow him into his house. Whoa. I mean, can you imagine doing that here in Hope Valley? I mean, like, and just in our area, like following someone to their house, pulling up behind them with your car, and then going in their house, and then saying, oh, by the way, um, where's the room you're supposed to have for me and Jesus to have communion? That's what they did. And when they went in, they went into the house, and they asked the owner of the house, where is the room that you have for the master prepared? And he says, let me show you. And it's fully furnished and ready to go. Is that not like God or is that God? That's amazing when you obey him and you do what he says. As crazy as it sounds, they listened to what he told them to do. The same results happen when we listen to these words and we do them exactly as Jesus told us to do them. We start to see pretty amazing things happen and God's plan unfold right before our eyes and we become part of that process and we're part of that plan and we do it and we submit and follow. Listen, that was an amazing story too. So twice these disciples did as Jesus said. And of course, I have to mention this too regarding our growth in obedience. Jesus modeled obedience for us. Did you know that? He modeled obedience. He never told us to do something that he didn't do himself first. And he said in John chapter 14 and verse 31, he said, I do as the Father has commanded me. Those are Jesus' words. That's what he said. And then earlier in John 8, 29, he says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the will of God, he said. Another translation. And then... Paul, the apostle, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, this is what he wrote. He wrote that Jesus lived out this life of obedience. We know this passage so well, and it's powerful, and I love it, and I'm so grateful to Jesus for it. Because Paul said, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming... It's the bad word. Becoming obedient... Jesus, the word we don't like, he humbled, he submitted, and he became obedient. How obedient? To the point of death. For you, for me, for everyone. That's how obedient he was. His obedience was so played out from the time he was born. Even when he was a young child and he was faithful to the law, he learned the law, he grew in wisdom and stature among men, the gospel writer says. And he demonstrated his knowledge because he's teaching in the temple at 12 years old. And he's schooling the scholars. He's obedient to God the Father perfectly. And he says he died even on the cross. And that's a great model. It's a perfect model for you and for me as we prepare for Easter, in fact, forget Easter, today, for every day when we get up, that we know we have to obey God, that through our obedience we have to grow, and we start to obey, we will start to see God doing amazing things when we're faithful to his will and to his command that he has revealed to us, and especially in Scripture. 
Do it and you'll be blown away at the miracles God will work in your life. You, you will. I'm just I'm telling you. It's absolutely amazing. They obeyed. You, that's a great model that Jesus was for us. And we could do no better than to follow the example of those two disciples as well. And though they, they had no, no way to know what the future will hold and what their actions would bring about, they simply obeyed. Take heart to Jesus' words to us in John chapter 15 and 14. You are my friends if you do whatever you feel like. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Can I take the liberty and reverse it? If you don't obey Jesus, you're not his friend. I'm not changing anything. That's the truth. You are not his friend if you don't obey him. Of course, I'm pretty sure that when we think about this story, we think about our lives, that your obedience that you have to grow in, what God's calling you to, and what he's pressing on your heart, and what he's speaking to you, I'm sure, he, I'm sure that your obedience won't involve a donkey. Well, maybe it will. I don't know, given where we live. I, who knows? But I don't think so. I don't think it's going to involve a donkey. But listen, here's the truth. Only you and God know what it will involve. In fact, a lot of you know what it does involve and you're still kind of chafing and you're like, ah, I don't want to do it. I can't do that. It's not me. And Jesus is like, that's right. It's me in you and let me live through you. Is he calling you to repentance and faith in him? Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, and, but you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus and asked him to forgive and wash away all your sins and believe it once and for always. Maybe you haven't done that. It's time to obey. Is he telling you to forgive someone? Is he telling you to help someone in some way? And you're like, yeah. Maybe he's telling you to give something up, but I like that too much, God. And he says, do you love me more? Is he telling you to take something on that you're avoiding? And you're, you, you don't want, oh, my schedule's already busy. I got to do this. And I got to work 9,000 hours. And I got, this is more important than that. I, you know, that's you between you and God. I'm just throwing that out there because, you know, I'm not God. It's between you and God. But you know. And some of you have been fighting for so long and you're still miserable because of it. Maybe you got to say yes to something that you've been saying no to for a long time, and you've got to say yes. I can't tell you, but I can say to you exactly what his mother said at the wedding of Cana, one of my favorite passages, because when they ran out of wine, and then he's, he's like, oh, take those pots and those jugs and start pouring water into the other ones. And his mother, Mary, just said, you do whatever he says, you do it. And, and they did it. And there was a miracle. You do what Jesus says. So one way to prepare for this Easter and one way, a fundamental way to grow in your Christianity and in your relationship with God is to do what he says. Grow in your obedience to Christ and his word. Secondly, look at verse 41 to 44. This next part of the gospel account here. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, 
If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, it sounds so cruel, so mean. How could Jesus say that? How could God allow that? Listen, it's not about being mean. It's not about cruel. It's not even about Jesus being angry. Jesus is lamenting. His heart is ripped. It's so torn. It's in pieces inside of him. And something happened on that ride to Jerusalem that we don't talk too often about. In fact, Matthew doesn't even record it. Mark didn't mention it. Luke is the only gospel writer who records this event. Listen, but don't let it pass you by today, and I can't either, because as Jesus approaches, he weeps. He weeps. Earlier in his ministry, Matthew records in chapter 9 and verse 36. And just prior to that verse, the the verses before verse 36 in Matthew's Gospel 9, Jesus, people are being brought to Jesus. And Jesus does miracles and he heals them and he takes care of them. And then it says in verse 36 that Jesus, he looked upon the multitudes. And it says there that He felt compassion. He was so broken. He felt compassion because he saw these people were distressed and they were downcast because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering, doing their own things. It's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said, that we all like sheep have gone astray. We all go our own way. We're doing our own thing. And nothing's helping. Nothing's changing. It's getting worse. We think it's fine. We think we're in control. And Jesus' heart is broken because he's right there among them for three years, teaching, preaching, healing, providing, guiding. And yet, no thank you. I don't need you. I don't need that. Obedience to you, submission, your word, God's word, forget it. I don't want that. And the Greek word that is translated wept in our Bibles, it's more than just tears. It suggests, and it really does, as I mentioned earlier, that there's this soul-wracking, there's a gut-wrenching, teeth-gritting sobbing that a person does at the tomb of a friend. And it's the same word and expression that's used when Jesus sees Mary sobbing at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. Jesus wept, it says. Shortest verse in the Bible. They learned it in Awana, right, Cohen? John 11, 35. Jesus wept. And it's the idea that it's Peter's also bitter sobbings and weepings after he has, when he denies Jesus three times, right? When he hears that that rooster crow, three times he denies him and he Bitterly weeps. It is not just, it is here so deep, broken up because actually, in Peter's case, of disobedience and denial. So, do you see the picture a little better now? 
See, Jesus swept so violently for the people of Jerusalem. And remember the context and the environment that he's in. It's, and he didn't weep for himself. He didn't feel bad for himself. He, he didn't weep because he knew the cross was just in front of him, waiting for him to be pierced and put on there for your sins and my sins. But he was weeping for the fate that would come upon that city because you know after a time when you make your choices over and over again and you push aside and you push aside and you slide away and away and away and it's darker and darker and darker and then something comes and it's called desolation and despair and ultimately destruction. All the buzz, because what's happening is there are tens of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And it's buzzing, and there's commerce, and there's activity, and families meeting together. All this stuff that's happening. And Jesus, he doesn't hear all that. He, instead, he hears all the screams, the cries, the shrieks, and the groans of the men, women, and children who would die in that city when... As he had prophesied, the Roman general Titus would invade in 70 AD and he'd raise that city and he would destroy that beautiful, glorious temple and he would brutalize those rebellious people because they were rebellious against God. It wasn't as if God didn't give them a chance. It's not that, but God is so holy and he desires so much for people to come to him. In fact, it's an amazing thing because Everybody's having a party for, before the Passover, and Jesus is filled with such compassion and brokenness for the lost sheep of Israel who didn't even know their own sad condition. And by the way, that condition was fully based on their spiritual state. We can't credit it. We can't credit it and blame it and excuse it because of a mental health issue. And again, with all due respect, and I, we, we have to be mindful of that. Please don't misunderstand me and run with that. It was a spiritual matter. The heart repeatedly was turned against God and rejecting. It wasn't an emotional state. It wasn't a financial condition. It wasn't a political condition. Well, we're slaves to the Romans. And how could God possibly be faithful? He's a bad God. I don't want to hear anything about him. Some of the Jews might have thought that. This has everything to do with the depraved mind and desperate heart that is so far and turned against God. Rebellious people. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. Let me give you evidence. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks to Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's speaking to all the Jews who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often... Listen, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. You didn't care to. You didn't listen. You didn't want it. You wanted to do your own thing. You wanted to get out from the shadow of my wing and explore and gallivant and wander and cause trouble and hurt yourself and hurt others and you wouldn't come under. You weren't willing. Willing. That's a voluntary thing. You were not willing. You decided, nope, I want nothing to do with that. Jesus was lamenting that in Matthew chapter 23, even after he gives all the woes to the Pharisees, who were pretty sad people, by the way, full of pride and arrogance and troubling everybody else as a result of their knowledge. You know, Jesus cried because the result would be ruin and desolation. It was an anger. Again, it was a deep lament over his people who rejected God's messengers historically. And now they're rejecting Jesus. 
God in the flesh walking with them. How can we do this? Think about the song we sang. We said, oh, I'm running to your arms. Right? We sing that song. And the riches of, I mean, I'm running to your arms and all the things that we have there. And we can sing that. And then we look around us and we know that there are so many people who are not underneath the shadow of God's wings. And we don't lament and we just kind of go on and we feel like, I'm good. And we don't look out and we don't have heartbroken hearts. Listen, we've got to feel what Jesus feels. But we're so comfortable. We want to live life our way. And we just, we forget about eternity and 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 the people that God loves and wants to save them. We could do no better than to prepare for Resurrection Sunday and to grow in our Christian journey than by letting ourselves feel what Jesus feels. And by the way, if we start to obey Jesus and do what he says, we're going to start to feel what he feels. I don't, I'm not talking about the emotion. I'm talking about right in the Spirit. Broken compassionate, longing to see people come to know Jesus. And by letting our hearts be broken for those who are hurting, those who are wandering, those who are searching, and those who don't even know that they're searching. I can't tell you who they are this morning as I come to a close, but I can tell you this. God knows. And you probably do too, for that matter. Your neighbor, your colleague, Your roommate, maybe. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Maybe it's your mother or father. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's an enemy. Maybe it's you keep going on. You can think of all kinds of people. Maybe it's a casual acquaintance, and that's all that person is. Who hasn't yet experienced that forgiveness of God, the deliverance of God, the peace of God, the freedom of God, that comes when you experience new life through faith in Jesus Christ at your surrender to Him. I will tell you one thing that I can assure you of. I can tell you what will happen for sure if you let yourself feel what Jesus feels. In other words, to see the world the way it is. It will bring a flood of compassion into your heart. And I need to grow in that area. We need to grow in that area because I can catch myself and I find myself being so cold and hardened to things and I don't want to deal with them and I just, I'm not feeling what God feels because I'm not seeing what God sees around me and my compassion is lacking and God help us to grow in our compassion. So, how are you going to prepare for Easter? How are you going to grow? How are you going to keep growing? Do what Jesus says. Feel what Jesus feels for humanity, for you. Because, you know, people around us, that's what they're waiting for, this Jesus, really. They're waiting for that. They're waiting to see if, if there really is a God, and they're looking at you. They're waiting to see if he really does care. They're waiting to see if the people who fill the churches and they sing his praises and they cry out to him and they claim to know him to see if those people are really any different. If their God can really be trusted. If their faith can really do anything. They're watching you and me. And if they see us doing what Jesus says to do and feeling what Jesus feels, 
for them, then maybe they'll ask, hey, what's, what's going on? What's this all about? Who is this? What is this in you that's causing you to be this way? What makes you so different? And before you know it, the doors start opening up and God's Spirit begins to work. And when you die to yourself through your obedience to Christ and His Word and feeling what He feels and not worrying about what you feel, just you yourself, things start happening. They do. It won't be the same, and people will be changed, starting with you. I need that. We all need that. So God help us to do that. Amen? Lord, thank you for your words this morning. Well, we just reflect, and I think of uh, my own life, God. I just ask you, Lord, to just... uh, Help me, Lord, in those areas where I'm not willing to budge regarding my obedience to you. Help me, Lord, to, as I read your word and see how you interacted with humanity and how you interact with me and I see how great your grace, your patience, your mercy is toward me, Lord, that, Lord, you would move on me and each of us, Lord, that we would feel what you feel and we'd be moved by compassion to share the gospel, to share the truth, the saving power of the gospel with those around us who are downcast and despairing. And may they find in you a great, good shepherd who is also their Savior. Lord, we love you and praise you. Take these words, seal them in our hearts, Lord, and help us to act on them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Grow in your obedience. Grow in your compassion. Amen.